Good morning, everybody. Um, so, yes, uh, Steve is uh, out and uh, we actually Steve and I met back in um, uh, the beginning of the summer before he left for sabbatical and uh, had lunch. And he asked me if I could uh, fill in for a couple of weeks um, while he was gone. I said, yeah, I'd love to. And every time Steve has ever asked me to fill in for him, he's given me a topic. He says, hey, I can't be there on this Sunday. Could you fill in for me? Here's, you know, we're in a series. Can you do this, this, you know, message of the series or we're, you know, just whatever. Or, and this time, no topic. He said, I got nothing for you, so make it up as, as you get closer. So that was all the way back in May. And I've been fretting all the way through summer. What am I going to speak on? Um, and nothing was coming to me. I'm like, I, I have no idea what I'm going to speak on. Uh, and so then I decided to change my tactic. And instead of kind of figuring out, you know, what, what should the church be hearing, whatever, I, says, I kind of started praying to the Lord and I says, you know, God, what do you want me to work on? What are the things in my life that you see are, are lacking or need to be, um, you know, proved upon? I know it's a super long list, but could you just give me like a couple or, or one or, one or, or, you know, whatever. And um, so I spent a lot of time in prayer and I really sensed God saying, slow down. And I thought, okay, God, what do you want me to work on? And, and again, I just got this real sense of, you know, slow down. God, and right there throughout all of heaven, you could just hear this palm slap of, oh my gosh, okay. So, I, okay, I get it. Um, I, I tend to live... Life at this breakneck speed, hair on fire, let's just go. How much can I cram into my schedule? Um, and I've learned that, you know, maybe that isn't the best way to go about things. And I've titled my message, Living Life on the Edge. And as for the OCDs in the, in the group, you're wondering why does the picture not go to the edges of both sides of the screen. Who formatted this, okay? That's there for a reason. There's a reason why there's white bars on the either side of that picture. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So don't, I don't want you to be distracted for the whole rest of the message. of like, why couldn't they make... Okay, I, I actually asked for that. So um, even people are going up to Margaret. What did you do? So she's like, no, he told me to do that way. But is it always a good thing to be living on the edge? I know there's so many times that, that speakers will use that analogy of we've got to be right on the edge. And one of my favorite books is by Warren Wiersbe and it's called On Being a Servant of God. And he uses a surfer analogy where he says the surfers are kind of out there bobbing you know, in the water and they're waiting for that perfect wave. But they always have to be ready and be right on the edge of that wave because when it hits, they got to be ready to go and catch that wave and ride it in. And of course, he says, God creates the wave. It's our job to ride the momentum that is created by the waves that God's creating. So I get that analogies can be good, but they have their weaknesses. My point is, we are so, as a society and a culture, ingrained in living on the edge and pushing everything to the extreme, that how much damage is that doing? We've become a society of busyness where we're just always, always busy. That causes health problems in us. It pulls family apart. Uh, and it can cause a lot of damage when it runs unchecked. And so what we're going to be talking about today is, is living on the edge really always a good thing? 
Now, I realize that I am the pot calling the kettle black in this. Remember, I said, I asked God, what do you want me to work on? So uh, I am not standing up before you saying, oh, I've got this all figured out and you guys are all the ones with the problem. No, I'm saying this is the message that God wanted me to hear. I'm just the one giving it. Um, in the first service, my mom was here. And she's like shaking her head at me and wagging her finger at me. Yes, you're the one. Uh, my neighbors were here, you know, that live right next door to me. So they're always like giving me grief of like, yeah, we see you haven't been home for two days. Are you going to take a break anytime soon? Uh, my wife is not here. She's actually on a road trip. Um, and one of her friends actually took a picture of me and sent it to her because my wife was very concerned what I was going to wear this morning because every morning I come downstairs and she looks at me and says, you're not wearing that to church, are you? And I'm always like, no, I was just seeing if it still fit. I'll go get something better. And so she was... She's quite concerned, so I, I hope I, I pass the test. Um, but um, we're going to look at that. Let's go ahead and pray before we start. Lord, thank you so much for um, the opportunity to be here. Um, and Lord, as we tackle a topic that affects so many of us, either at a personal level as a family level, of, of living life in such a busy, busy way um, that it can have negative impacts on us. So Lord, I pray as we go through this you would use me as your instrument um, and, and open our hearts to what you'd have to teach us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, right off the bat, I want to use an illustration of somebody who was extremely busy um, during their life. And they had so many demands brought upon them. Of course, that is our, our, our Lord Jesus that um, uh, spent his time on earth Caring for people. And as we go through the Gospels, we see over and over again the multitude and the crowds pressing in, wanting part of Jesus' time. Uh, and when Jesus was here on earth, you know, he spent a lot of time healing people. He spent a lot of time ministering to people. He was raising people from the dead. And the crowds kept coming and coming and coming to him. And, and as I read through the passages, I come across a very, very unique um, passage in the Bible, and it's found in the book of John. It's John 17, verse 4, and it just simply says this. This is Jesus praying. He's in the garden, and he's praying. He's at the end of his, of his ministry. He, he knows he's about to go to the cross, and he's in the garden, and he's praying to God. And this is what he says to God. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So this is Jesus at the end, and he says, God, I'm done. I, I accomplished everything that you wanted me to do. Now, the reason that stands out to me so, so much is, did Jesus heal every person that needed to be healed? No. Did he witness to every person that needed to be witnessed to? No. Did, did he get to spend time with every single person that came and, and wanted to be part of his time? No. In fact, you know, we, we read even uh, um, um, further on in, in Mark uh, that, you know, people would come to Jesus and the disciples would be like, Jesus, there's all these people that, that you know, that want, want you. And Jesus said, great, uh, we're going to go to the next town. Leave them behind and went to the next town. And you're like, what was up with that? Well, we find what up, was up with that in, in Mark. Mark one thirty five. Now, this is Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. 
And uh, he's, he does this. It says, uh, and rising very early in the morning, this is Mark 1, 135, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And what we see Jesus doing is we see him spending time every morning going out to somewhere where there was nobody around when he could be by himself, and he spent time with God the Father. Now, what was he doing? He was praying, saying, God, what do you want me to do? What does today hold? What are the things that, that, that I need to be doing? And Jesus was getting his perspective of what, because remember, Jesus was on earth to accomplish what God the Father wanted accomplished. And we see that in the last passage in John. Father, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Well, how did he learn what the work was he gave him to do? Through prayer. There's an author, P.T. Forsyth. He says this. He says, the worst sin is prayerlessness. Hmm, interesting. The root of all sin is self-sufficiency, independence from the rule of God. Uh, so when we fail to wait prayerfully for God's guidance and strength, we are saying with our actions, if not with our words, we do not need him. How much of our service is actually going it alone? What the author is saying is that unless we're spending time in prayer with God, then we're just kind of winging it. And God may be saying, I have a purpose for you. I have things I want you to accomplish, but we're not spending time with the Lord. And so we're just going it alone. And then we begin to focus on things that uh, maybe we shouldn't be focusing on. And, and, and I think that the Lord is interested in, in not only what we do, but I think he's also interested in our downtime, times where we're not just trying to do so much. Um, oftentimes, uh, you know, we refer to, uh, to the Lord as our shepherd, and that would make us sheep. Uh, and, and sheep are, are awesome to hang out with. They're cute and fuzzy and, and cuddly, and uh, they're not the brightest thing in the whole world, um, but, uh, but they're easily started, easily scared. Um, and so when we realize that we're the sheep, God is the shepherd, uh, then we, we begin to learn about that relationship. And then we find ourselves in one of the very, very familiar passages in the Bible, Psalm 23, um, and Psalm 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, and he restores my soul. We we realize in this passage that if we're always running at max speed and maximum output, then we're missing the refreshment part of what the Lord has for us. It's the margins in our life. What is that white space on either side of the picture representing? It's representing margins on a page of, of paper. And if you've ever been in a class taking notes, but they have all this you know, stuff on the, on the handout, you start writing notes in the margins. And sometimes you take a class and they actually have these huge margins right down both sides of it for the whole purpose of taking notes. Um, you have space on your page to be able to add extra stuff. And how much of us do we, we run our life with no extra margins of room? And what this passage is telling us is God can restore us, but there's a moment of stopping for that to happen. He, and then I love this word, he makes us lie down in green pastures. Do you notice that that passage does not say that he suggests 
we lay down? You know, that pastor didn't say he thinks it might be a good idea if I lay down. He recommends it. No, what does it say? He makes me lie down. The idea of the shepherd knowing as I'm moving the flock from here to over there that I better put in rest breaks where I make them stop and rest because otherwise it's not going to go so, so good as we continue on the, on the way. And that's what the Lord's doing with us. But are we listening to his voice? Are we listening to what he has to say? Because we, like sheep, are easily distracted, easily flustered, uh, easily frightened. We're, we're, let's be honest, we're a pretty anxious bunch. We're a pretty anxious bunch. And through that anxiety, we tend to grab onto things that we think are important, but maybe they're not. This is what I mean by it. It's a, a, a concept known as, as the tyranny of the urgent. What tyranny of the urgent is, is that I've got important things in my life that I need to accomplish. But what distracts me is the little spot fires that pop up. And, and that attracts our attention. So uh, this last weekend, uh, there was a big event at work and I was in charge of that big event. It happened on, uh, on Saturday. I think that was yesterday. Yesterday. Um, and, uh, and so Friday... I'm doing all the finishing touches for that event. So I go into work on, on Friday morning and I've got these things have to be in place before the event starts on Saturday morning. All have to be done. And all of a sudden, all these little issues start popping up at work. And for some reason, the people at work decided I'd be an excellent person to work on those issues. Uh, and so they started coming at me and I'm like, oh, I'll take care of that. Yep, I'll take care of that. I'll take care of that. Now, I went into work on Friday morning knowing I had about eight hours of work to do to get this event pulled off. At 4 p.m. on Friday night, I had yet to start any of those assignments. So, yeah, Friday was kind of a late night. Uh, and as I looked back on it at the end of the night, I realized, you know what? Except for one instance, every one of those things that distracted me in the morning and early afternoon... Um, could have waited or somebody else could have done them. I, I didn't have to be the one doing it. I could have farmed them off to other people. Um, uh, they could have handled it. Um, there was only one incident that was really, um, truly something. And well, that was somebody who crashed into a Jersey barrier on the freeway. So I kind of had to be there for that. So um, for those of you who don't realize, I'm, I'm a firefighter. And so I was responding to that call. But yeah, that kind of, you know, took me away from my project. But that was kind of what we do. We respond to 91 calls. Um, and, but the, the other ones... Somebody else could have easily done those. I didn't have to be doing it, but it was my being distracted by the urgent that pulled me away from the important. And how often that we live life that way, where we get so distracted by something that seems like, oh my gosh, I got to take this right now. But through better perspective, it could have probably waited. It could have probably waited. Well, I want to give you an example of how we tend to start to kind of fade from maybe saying, whether it's, you know, like early in life or maybe when you get married or start having a family, whatever, where you say, you know what? I don't want to be busy. I don't want to be like those other people that are so crazy busy that their lives are always out of control. And, and, and you think this is the way, you know, I'm going to be or we're going to be or whatever. And then all of a sudden years go by and you find out that you are that person. Or your family is that people. And it's like, okay, how did we get here? How do we go from 
years ago or whenever saying we're not going to be like this and now we're like this. And so I, I want to use a, a, a historical example um, to help illustrate this picture of what goes wrong in our lives. Um, if you were alive in the 1980s, you know exactly what this picture is of. You probably know exactly where you were when that hit our TV sets. If you're not alive in the 1980s, this is the space shuttle Challenger that 73 seconds after liftoff disintegrated uh, and killed all seven astronauts. So the question is, what went wrong? What is it that went wrong with this disaster and could it have been prevented? And is there a way to prevent it from ever happening again? That was the question of the day uh, after this occurred on January 28th, 1986. So to help answer that and to help make my point of how things start getting out of, out of place, I need to give you a little lesson on rocket science. Okay? So, and by the way, just a little uh, commercial. If you are an engineer, yes, I get that I'm condensing an entire rocket science down to 10 minutes, okay? Because all the engineers came up to after me after first service, like, well, you forgot this, forgot that. I'm like, okay, I'm just a firefighter, okay? <laughs> it's all right. I'm not an engineer, so be like clear. So um, anyway, so we do have to learn a little bit. So uh, how the, the shuttles operate is what gets them from the ground to space is solid rocket boosters. Uh, this is a breakout of a solid rocket booster, uh, and these things are pretty impressive. They are 150 feet long. They're 12 feet in diameter. They weigh 1.3 million pounds each. Okay? There's two of them. So that doesn't include the, uh, you can see the two of them on either side. That does not include the fuel tank, which is the big orange thing in the middle. And then, of course, the space shuttle that's attached to that whole system. Um, so that is the, um, uh, we're just talking the booster. Uh, it, they're built in Utah. So they're, they're, they were built in Utah, and so they, they have to move them from Utah to Florida, so they put them in sections. So they section them out. Uh, you can see the different sections there. And when they get to Florida, then they stand them upright, they put them all together, and uh, uh, attach them to that, um, you know, all together and, and get ready to, to ship off. Well, because they're built in sections, great care has to be made on how you put them together because these booster rockets are going to burn at 5,000 degrees and 100 PSI. So everywhere that there is a connection point, we have to make sure that that 5,000 degree fire does not touch metal. Why? Because metal boils at 5,000 degrees. It doesn't melt at 5,000. It boils at 5,000 degrees. So we could have a catastrophic failure if anything goes wrong. So what you see up there is everywhere you see these little black lines on the booster tanks, those are our sections. And there's another one right down here at the bottom. Uh, and so to prevent the, uh, the flames from coming out, they have O-rings. And there's a redundancy. There's two O-rings uh, in each of those joints to prevent that from happening. Now, before the first shuttle mission went up, the engineers that designed this system told their bosses at NASA, this is so important that if those O-rings ever show any sign of failure or any damage to those O-rings, we have to shut this entire program down because that is absolutely not acceptable. And NASA said, we agree. The standard, the mission critical standard is zero tolerance for any damage to those O-rings. 
The first mission of the shuttle went up, came back. By the way, these uh, booster rockets, they have uh, big, huge parachutes in the nose cone. Uh, so once they get the uh, sp- space shuttle right up to the edge of the atmosphere, uh, then they detach apart. The parachutes pop out and that thing floats nice and gently down to the to the water. Uh, boat goes out there, grabs it, tows it back in. They take it apart. They ship it back to uh, Utah. They inspect it. Uh, they replace the components that need to be replaced, uh, and then they actually use them. So they bring them back out here, pop them in, and, and then they're good to go again. Uh, and so after the first shuttle, everything looked awesome. Shuttle mission number two. It comes back. They break it apart. Some of the O-rings have damage. Now, the, the second space shuttle mission was a success. There was no problems. But when they broke it apart, they went, you know what? We see some damaged O-rings. Uh, and so they said... This is a concern. These are the engineers that are telling NASA bosses this is a concern. But what did NASA do? They says, you know what? We have all the pressure of the American people staring at us. This program has to be successful. We sold it that this was the future of space. We're on mission two. Yeah, there's damage to the O-ring, but did the ship blow up? No. Did everything work fine? Yes. So clearly, it's not an issue. I think we'll be okay. Because as long as, if these shuttles are sitting on the ground, grounded because of an issue, then they're not getting payload up into space. And they had already told the American public back then that we would be flying shuttles every two weeks. And that was the expectations of the American people. The uh, engineers did not agree with that. They continued to voice their concern uh, and said, you know, we just got have some concerns. But uh, what happened was that they felt that shortcuts could be taken and it was under pressure that standards began to, be, to get lowered now instead of it's a mission critical any damage and o-ring will not be tolerated it became well it was just a little bit of damage and what we saw is a concept known as the the, the normalization of deviance we've deviated a little bit from what we originally said and now that's become normal 14 of the first 24 shuttle missions had damaged O-rings when the booster rocket came back and they inspected it. You know, and they put new O-rings in, sent it up, come back, and those were damaged as well. So 14 of 24. So what happened was, every time a rocket came back with damaged O-rings, what they would say was, you know what? It's okay. Because nothing bad happened. So we're, we're okay. And they began to rationalize and began to normalize what they had at one point said was mission-critical any damage and we've ground the entire fleet now became a, a expectation. Well, of course, they're going to be damaged O-rings. That's what happens to O-rings. They get damaged. Ah, the spacecraft is just fine. And it keeps looping back to our brains that, you know what? We took a shortcut. And what were the consequences? Nothing. We, 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 we did something that we thought we wouldn't be able to do and nothing bad happened. So we're okay. So we're going to repeat that and repeat it and repeat it. Well, like I said, the first 24 space shuttles that went up, 14 of them had damaged O-rings and nothing bad happened. And so they kept cutting the same corners and the same corners and the shortcuts became the new norm. Until this. If you go back and look at the uh, slow motion video of uh, the Challenger lifting off from the, um, the launch pad, within the first couple seconds, 
what's noticed is a black puff of smoke coming off of the um, uh, that lower, right down in here where that lower uh, j- connection joint is. You see a black puff of smoke come out. That's the O-ring disintegrating and basically just burning out. Now there's no O-rings protecting it anymore. So about one minute into the flight, you begin to see the booster rockets burning through the sides of the aircraft. That metal is failing. Again, it's burning at 5,000 degrees. The metal's boiling. The connection points that are attaching the aircraft to this whole thing is located right in that area. And so it continues to burn through, continues to burn through. The spacecraft actually came apart. It, it really, if you want to split hairs, did not explode. That first picture of the big ball of, uh, of flames really wasn't so much an explosion as the entire aircraft just disintegrating. And so the, f- the fuel still contained inside the fuel tank just vaporized instantly. Um, and so that was that big white cloud um, was everything just disintegrating and the death of seven a- astronauts. Now, people are shocked at this tragedy. And you know what they called it? The engineers? They called it a predictable surprise. Now, remember, the engineers, they're working for a subcontractor putting all this together. They had been sending emails to the top brass of NASA. We're concerned, we're concerned, we're concerned. One engineer sent an email six months before this disaster. He says, my concern is, is that an O-ring is going to suffer catastrophic failure on the launch pad and the entire spacecraft will, dis- will disintegrate on the launch pad. He was only missed it by 73 seconds. He was absolutely right, but he, but he didn't realize that the spacecraft would be able to, to fly for th- 73 seconds before it, it came apart. Um, and so why, in his alarm, didn't anybody say, we got a problem here? Because it had become the norm. They thought, we're okay. We've done this 24 times. Everything's okay. Those engineers really put their career on the line by challenging the top brass of NASA. But NASA was under so much pressure that they made excuses. Like I said, those shortcuts became the norm. And I often see families doing that same thing. Or individuals. It can happen to an individual. What I mean by that is this. I have a week that is really, really busy. And I pack as much as I can into that week. Even though I said I don't like, you know, being, you know, gone every night of the week with extra activities and this and that or whatever the case may be. But you have to do it on this week. And that week goes by and at the end of it, nothing bad happened. It was kind of crazy, but nothing bad happened. Or families start packing their, their, uh, their schedules up. And you get through it and nothing bad happens. And we begin to trick ourselves into thinking, well, then we can get through this. Let me give you another illustration. Texting and driving. There was a study done. 97% of the people said texting and driving wasn't a good idea and it was dangerous. Yet of those same people that took the survey, 76% of the people said that they text and drove. Now, this is before the law was passed. This is an older survey. So why would... People that said, almost everybody that answered the survey said, this is dangerous, but yes, I do it. Well, because, I mean, I get that there's probably a lot of us in this room, me included, that have driven and textured something like that, right? And what happened? Nothing. You didn't crash. You didn't drive off the road and run over a pedestrian or a bicyclist. So you do it again. What happened? Nothing. 
So you get into belief. Oh, I can do this. I can handle this. Remember, I'm the guy that gets to go out and pick up those people. So when I you know, have to go to the fatality and the person's got a phone still in their hands, what do we say? This was a predictable surprise. Yeah, it's shocking that this person killed themselves or killed somebody else, but it was just a matter of time before it happened. Because we all know that texting and driving is dangerous, but we've tricked ourselves and by the normalization of deviance, we're just slow changes and slow tricking our brains. We believe to think that this is okay, I can do this. And our families and our schedules do the same thing. We can live busy, busy, crazy lives because we are doing it and we seem to be okay. And then the family implodes. And they show up here at Steve's office. And what do we look at? We say, you know what? Kind of a predictable surprise here. Yeah, it's a shock and a surprise that all of a sudden your family, the wheels just fall off of the family. But boy, looking at your schedule, you know, it's kind of we could have seen it coming. And what's almost always the first thing that gets ejected out of our time when we get busy? Our time with the Lord. And we begin to start living out of balance because we just got rid of our time with the Lord. And we already learned what was really the key to Jesus life and not getting overwhelmed by the busyness or the urgent was to stay grounded in being with the Father. And we start to lose that and we start to get out of balance. So what I want to do is I want to give you four quick measures that we can take to help maintain this balance. Number one is decide what's important. The tyranny, the urgent. We need to focus on the important things and not get distracted by the urgent things. But we can't do that unless we know this is really important. This is the things we need to stay focused on. Then we need to discover where your time goes. We are, are famous as individuals of not being good illustrators of, of where's my time going. Um, in my generation, it was how much time you st- spent sitting in front of a TV set. This generation, or us now, it's how much time do I spend on my computer device? And what am I doing on it? Uh, am I just, you know, looking at cat videos all day long? Or, uh, or am I working? I mean, what, what is it that's taking your time? And then is that time important? Are, are those the important things? Um, another thing is budget the hours that you have. And I like the word budget because it puts it in perspective of like money. If I said, I'm going to give you $1,000 a month and you have to account for where that money goes each month. So this much of it is going to go to groceries, this much is going to go to gas, this much is going to go to the house payment, this much, okay? Um, Okay, so we get that kind of budgeting. Have you ever tried doing that with your time, with your hours? And then knowing that I can't fill it up? My, My big problem is, I like to budget stuff in my day. The problem is I'm like, okay, I'm going to get up at this hour and I'm going to eat. I'll take exactly seven and a half minutes to eat breakfast and shower. I'm going to get in the car. It's going to take me exactly 27 minutes to get to work. And I get, okay, and then there's a car accident and it took me 35 minutes to get to work. And now my whole day shot because I scheduled everything in there to the minute and no margins to be able to absorb anything. Okay, so by budgeting, we can get ahead of that. I, I had a friend who worked at, at Microsoft and he had a meeting with Bill Gates and they talked to him before he met with Bill Gates and, he, he, uh, and they told him this. He says, you know, you've got to understand when you meet with Bill Gates, the man's got all the money in the world. He, 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 money is really inconsequential to him because he, he's got lots of it. But you know what he doesn't have any more of than anybody else? Time. So don't waste his time when you're in a meeting because he's a very busy man and he's got the exact same minutes of the day that you have. 
Uh, and I thought, wow, that's so true. We all have the same minutes in the day. And so often we say, if only I had five more hours in the day, and it was a 30-hour work day, you know, day instead of 24, and what would we all do with that five extra hours? We'd fill it up, wouldn't we? Yep, with more stuff. So budgeting is an important thing. Um, and then, like I said, start slowly. No big sudden changes. I think we all fail sometimes at this. We know I should do this, but then we try and like just across the board cut. No, no, slow, slow movements on it. And then follow through. You have to be able to follow through on it. Uh, that's really, really important. We, like sheep, are easily started. And I'm going to have the worship team go ahead and come on up. And remember I said, in our busyness and our drive to try and get more and more accomplished to the point where it affects our health, affects our family, and then we get that predictable surprise of what happened, when when did this all start up, and it was the slow process of, uh, of, of normalization, we realized that as sheep being easily started, that we need to realize that our trust needs to be in the Lord. Matthew 6.25 says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. It is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And we realize that we tend to do the things that we do because of our anxiety. That's the tyranny, the urgent, running after the urgence because we're so anxious that this is going to fall apart if I don't get right onto it right away. And Jesus is saying, but hold on. You can't, you can't add any more time in your day. You can't add an hour of your life by being anxious. Come to the Lord and put your cares on him. He will take care of you. He will care for your needs. But if we eject that part of it out of what we do, because of our busyness, that's when things start to get out of balance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, you give us time. And in your creation, we've been given uh, daytime and nighttime, and, but it's a finite um, principle of, like we said, there's only so many hours in the day. Lord, help us to be able to become good budgeters of that time. Lord, help us to start with an evaluation of what's important, knowing that you are the top of that list. And Lord, as we learn in in the the Challenger disaster that that deviation of what we once said was mission critical, critical, we won't waver on this issue. All of a sudden we start to see that, that waver. And Lord, I know myself am guilty and and, and so many uh, of my friends here in this room of coming to know you and saying, Lord, I will always spend time with you in prayer and in the word and all that stuff. And then yet life gets in the way and we realize it was once a mission critical of spending time with you became justified of how we can skip a day or a week or longer. Lord, help us to get back in the word if, if we're not there already. Help us to be praying to you on a daily basis to have you show us what's important, to have you show us the direction we need to go each day and every hour of our life, that it would be honoring to you. In your name we pray. Amen.